Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Welcome to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, and our Reasonable Voice today is Susan Bro. Susan Bro is the mother of Heather Heyer and founder of the Heather Heyer Foundation. Heather was the 32-year-old who was fatally injured during the Charlottesville Unite the Right White Supremacist Rally when a driver, James Alex Fields Jr., rammed his car into the crowd a little over three years ago, August 12, 2017. And just like that, Susan Bro in the wake of her daughter's murder, suddenly became a subject of media attention. I've invited Susan Bro to talk with us again today to update us on her story about how and why she continues to move forward after the tragedy of losing a child by creating the Heather Heyer Foundation. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices program. Susan Bro. how are you today? I'm fine, Marcello. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm reeling still a little like many from uh, last night's presidential debate. Do you want to make any comment, by the way, on that before we jump into other things? (laughs) Well, yeah, that was kind of interesting. I was washing dishes at the kitchen sink when they happened to mention Charlottesville. Uh, Gasped a little and said, okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I happened to also be working on scholarships for the 2021 year at that time, so mm-hmm. I feel like that's pretty much the way my life goes. You take in the news, you reel a little, and you keep on working. I understand. All right, then. Well, since you mentioned scholarships, let's talk, of course, about the Heather Heyer Foundation, its accomplishments thus far, and its goals for the immediate and distant future. I think the last time we spoke on radio, you had just really gotten going with this, but... Let's begin with reminding. That's a good idea. Let's remind everyone of what exactly is the Heather Heyer Foundation and its mission. We originally formed as a scholarship foundation, and that's still our primary function at the moment. We're a small team, a team of very limited numbers. So we have given out a total of 22,000, a little over 22,000 in scholarships in the last three years. 
I am getting ready today to put on the website. Someone is actually proofreading them. Well, I guess by the time your broadcast comes out, it will have already happened. But someone is in the process of proofreading the scholarships as we speak before I upload them to the website. And um, so we'll give out another 8,000. So in only four years, we will have given out $30,000 in scholarships. That's only 1,000 per person. So that's 30 young activists who have been helped just a little bit in their education. And that's to promote positive social change. We're not interested in people who are just standing there with a handout, but we're looking for people who are already activists, who are interested in using their education to move forward in their positive social activism. That's a big component of the application is telling us about that. And in addition, we had a youth empowerment program that ran briefly last fall. It ran from September through December, where young people came together from very diverse backgrounds to learn about the power of difference with Elliot Cisneros of the SUM. Elliot actually ran the program, and, and we sort of assisted on the side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were going to run it again in the spring, and the students said, well, the pressure on us is so tremendous. Can you just wait until the summer, which we did? And then, of course, the pandemic hit. So we've been looking to move that to an online model. That's still sort of in process. Right now, all the educational networks are pretty heavily impacted by so much online learning. So that's sort of on a back burner while we figure out exactly how we're going to run that. But yep, that's sort of where we are right now. Still growing our endowment too. I understand. One more question about the scholarships. I know uh, you probably are not able to speak to the ones under consideration that are being proofread, as you say, as we record but I wonder, can you give us some examples of the of the past scholarships of some of the people who received them? Because you make a very good point. These are they must already be activists, and they must be positive in their POV, in their approach, and what they're I guess for what they're advocating has to be positive, and they need to do it in a positive way. Am I a little too much overkill there? But you tell me. Well, we've had diverse pool of applicants. We've had. African-American, Palestinian, American, Palestinian, African-American, Caucasian or white. Uh, We've had black, Hispanic. We've had a variety of gender backgrounds, trans, binary, non-binary, cisgender. We've had just a large variety of applicants, and they've gone for anything from political science majors to education majors to people working with the police to, you know, improve police relations with community, people working on gender identity projects, people working on environmental issues. I mean, it's a really broad spectrum that we're looking at. You know, positive social change can hit a wide variety of areas. Fortunately, uh, it's not up to me to score all these, Mm. nor uh, my immediate, you know, the immediate staff, but... We have, a uh, last year I pulled in a team of 50 volunteers to, to grade 25 applications. We use a blind scoring process where we redact all the information uh, such as gender, race, religion, 
then each application is scored according to a scoring checklist by uh, at least four volunteers, and then those scores are simply tallied, and from that, I generally have pretty clear winners. We have tiebreakers. I try to hold Alfred Wilson and myself as the tiebreakers. I don't even see the applications. Kathy, my office person who handles receipts, handles getting the copies in, making sure all the paperwork is in, making sure that all the signatures are in place. Of course, this past year, we had a unique challenge. All the applications had been mailed by January 15th, as is our usual process, and then the pandemic hit. So I had to move everything to an online format for scoring purposes, which we did. Mm-hmm. So for the month of September, I had a committee formed of prominent black leaders to ask them to look over our processes and make sure that we're being as unbiased as possible in our scoring process and our application. They made a couple of suggestions that I followed through on. I went to a completely online format as a result of their suggestions. And like I said, that's going to be uploaded today. So all I can tell you is by the time this show airs, they'll be loaded onto the website and people can look to see. Excellent. Well, that that was what I the, the point I wanted you to make. I mean, I knew all of that because we've talked about this from time to time. But the fact is there seems to be only very few requirements. I mean, come one, come all, as long as you are already an activist and you are advocating positively for a positive social change. You truly mean that. It's not just a slogan with you. Because clearly your criteria for choosing who receives these scholarships makes that point, as you did. And I knew you would do it so eloquently, so I, I just wanted everyone to hear that. <laughs> what, you know, okay. really, really. How do you feel about it? And again, I, we are pre-recording the Wednesday after the first Tuesday night presidential debate. And I think no matter what one feels about the debate, and I don't want to distract us or get off track from that, but the message clearly must be for everyone, we must vote. What are your thoughts about? What are your, What is your advocacy for? What is your involvement in getting out the vote? Is that part of what you, uh, Heather Heyer Foundation, is about? I think Alfred was trying to do some of that in Uh, down where he lives. I personally have not had a chance. I am involved in a number of other things. I'm in the process of opening my own life coaching business as well as I have speaking engagements on the side. You would think that in time of pandemic and working from home that work would let up, but it actually has increased. (laughs) Yes, I know, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Tell me um, about it, yes. But, no, I have not actually done any of that. Well, the, I do encourage people to get out the vote, and I say so on social media and in my speaking engagements all the time. My husband and I actually went to vote last Friday, in-person voting, where mm-hmm, we live. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I did, too. I voted early in person. I think we have a number of choices. And laws have changed most recently in Virginia that make it easier to vote, and, and there are a number of ways. So... But you are an advocate for everyone voting, yes? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that A democracy requires citizen, an informed citizenry to vote. If you're not getting informed, you need to go do so. Don't vote in the same way you've always voted. 
take a moment and look at what the issues are, look at who the candidates are, look at what they stand for. You're not voting just for them, you're voting for everything that they put in place that some of which is going to last on through the lifetime of your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. So you need to think carefully about what you're voting for. And with that, you make me, of course, wonder about the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts, in not just for this one nomination, but how this is done and how the Supreme Court uh, will, without a doubt, affect our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren? Your thoughts? Well, like it or not, it is his right to put a judge in place. I hope that whoever is put in place is going to be unbiased, We're hearing a lot about her personal life. I'd like to know more about her voting record, Mm -hmm. but I know that she is considered conservative. That's likely to give us a heavily conservative court. Now, a gentleman and I had a difficult conversation on Facebook the other day about whether or not that matters. I personally think that when we have a more balanced court with liberals and conservatives rather balanced evenly, then we have a better chance of getting more unbiased rulings. But the truth is, when you elect somebody, you give them the power to appoint a SCOTUS. Mm-hmm. So. And you know, and that's true, it's, it's true, it's part of the power of the president, you elect the person, there is a vacancy created, the president has a right to nominate, fulfill that. Of course, Mitch McConnell does a two-step on that, and and it just that's unfortunate. I don't think that should be part of the way. Frankly, I wish, but you know, it's a wish. I wish that we could say our judicial system, regardless if you're appointed by a Democratic president or a Green Party or you know, uh, or a Republican president, when you're on the bench, you're not there to make a political statement. Is it not our desire? that our judicial system, regardless it's Supreme Court or state courts or federal courts, don't we want our jurists to be as close to Solomon as instead of being Democratic oh, judges yes, or Republican yes. judges? What do you think? Yeah, it would be nice. I mean, we, we hope that people are that way. Unfortunately, we don't, we don't really get to decide. I mean, part of the process is that this is the way it plays out. It's it's just all the more important that we contact our Congress representatives with our desires. Mm. Well, I hear what you're saying. It does, it's a challenge. It's a challenge, and we are in challenging times, and and of course, COVID-19 keeps us busy, but it is also uh, very dangerous to life. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, with Susan Bro about her feelings about anti-racism and, 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 and sustained activism and how one fuels that. How do you energize, sustain activism? So stay with us. We'll be right back with Susan Bro. Welcome to the Andy Fell Minute. In history class, most of us learned that the Civil War ended the institution of slavery in America. The 13th Amendment declared that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude should be legal in the land except as a punishment for crime. It is this conspicuous loophole that award-winning director Ava DuVernay explores in her blistering documentary, 13th. Through a series of interviews with academics, businessmen, and politicians from both sides of the aisle, along with horrific historical photographs and modern video footage, 
13th makes the case that slavery never disappeared in America. It only changed form. First with the Jim Crow laws of the South, then in the 80s as the war on drugs, and now with the disproportionate mass incarceration of black Americans. The subject matter is difficult, but DuVernay has edited the film so as to make it impossible to turn away. There are no moments of silence, no places to catch your breath. Hip-hop lyrics punctuate the film's segments, relentless in their plea for justice. If ever a film deserved to become required viewing across America, it would be 13th. Watch it tonight. 13th. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, and our Reasonable Voice today is Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer and founder of the Heather Heyer Foundation. Heather was, as I said at the beginning of the first segment, the 32-year-old who was fatally injured during the Charlottesville Unite the Right white supremacist rally when a driver rammed his car into the crowd. That was August 12, 2017, and I think it's safe to say Charlottesville was changed quite a bit. And I, I think it's also, Susan, you, you jump in on this. Do you, do you think it was a wake-up call for Charlottesville? Did it have certain image of itself shattered or wounded? Or What are your thoughts on that? Well, there have always been two Charlottesvilles. There's been White Charlottesville and not White Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. White Charlottesville, it was a wake-up call. Not White Charlottesville, for the most part, had been in this battle for years. Mm -hmm. The KKK had been there before. The um, white supremacists had been there before. And most of us who were white were ignoring them. Mm. Not all, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but most of us. So, yes, uh, as is a, often happens, we don't pay attention to something until someone who looks like us is affected. Yes. We may hear it and have a brief moment of emotion, and then we move quietly back into our everyday lives. I'm so sad to have to agree with you because I, I know what you're saying, and I've been there and it's it's true it's it's true i mean well there's no excuse for it so i'm not going to try and explain it away but it is true and um as you know i have a home in charlottesville and i've spent a good deal of time uh, there since uh, coronavirus struck it kind of i've have sort of headquartered in charlottesville for a good time but your organization and of course your response understandably has focused a lot on anti-racism how is that a part of your life now and the, um, well, let me put it to you this way. When I first came to Charlottesville, Virginia, I wanted, because I've directed theater in, in New York City for, you know, decades, and when I uh, got home here, I didn't plan on retiring anything. I wanted to direct something, and I thought, oh, this would be great because of the location and whatever. Let me uh, do a production of Ragtime. And I went around looking for the possibilities of that, and I couldn't find, I couldn't get African Americans to audition. 
and it, and of course I'm very much involved in politics too. So I went to the political, the local politicals who I know. One of them at the time was the city manager, and I asked him quite frankly, "Where are all the black people?" And there was this long pause, and he said finally, "Well, they are here. It's just that it's a it's a separate city." And since you brought that up, with that context, tell me, what is it you are doing and what do we need to do to fight racism in a 2020 election year? A couple of things I want to say about that. One is, let me make it clear, I do almost nothing in Charlottesville. Charlottesville doesn't really need my help. They are very well activated. There is a large activist community that has been there all along and Heather was simply walking with some of them that day. I mean, she herself was not an activist in Charlottesville. She was an activist online. She was um, an activist one-on-one. But the number one thing you need to do is educate yourself. Don't run to black people and say, tell me everything I need to know, but take a few minutes and go online and look at what's recommended reading, pay attention, pay attention to the news, listen to a variety of sources, try to get reliable sources, use fact checkers when you see things that alarm you. Sometimes they're true and sometimes they're completely fabricated, but Mm. you won't know if you don't look at fact checkers. And I mean more than one. Be okay with being uncomfortable it's not going to kill you to learn that you may have been doing things wrong. It may embarrass you. It may upset you, but it's okay. You can learn and grow through that. We as adults get very comfortable with the notion that we have it all together and we don't want to admit to the fact that we still have growing and learning to do. Yes. Yes. So, um, that's just something we have to take responsibility for ourselves. If you find a strong black leader, There's a group called RISE in Waynesboro, Virginia. That's where they're headquartered. That is operated by Chanda McGuffin and uh, Sharon Fitz. They are taking time to train people through workshops, through classes. They're an excellent resource. But there are many resources on uh, a variety of platforms. Dr. Nicole Price, Dr. Kelly Palmer, there are a variety of, of very strong black leaders that you can find. You just have to be willing to find them and to listen to what they have to say, to take the time to do the reading, to watch the movies that are recommended. I mean, if you're committed to anti-racism work, you have to be committed to getting an education yourself. Yes. I had a recent guest who who just mentioned in passing because she is directing a play about Rosa Parks and the bus, and she said, well, you know that African Americans had to get on the bus in the front and pay their fare and then get off the bus in the front and go back to the back door and enter. I had no idea. So education, you're absolutely right. We need to know what happened and what is happening. All right. Sustained activism. You've mentioned this to me in the past. Tell us about that. What and and again, how that weaves through your mission for uh, the Heather Heyer Foundation. Well, 
But the thing with activism is it's really easy to get all excited for a little while. Mm. And then suddenly you forget. And it's easy to go right back to status quo, to doing things that you've always done, to just not really caring anymore, to be honest. I mean, people don't like being uncomfortable. They like sticking with what they know. And so people will often just walk away saying, well, you know, that doesn't really apply to me anymore. Mm. So sustainable activism means that you are now committed to looking at the world through a different set of lenses. You are willing to open your eyes and be aware of how things are maybe not the way you thought they were before. You are now committed to seeing what you can do to change systems. You are now committed to listening rather than immediately acting because Mm -hmm. People don't need a white savior to come rushing in. They need a white person who is willing to use their platform to help others. But but you have to listen to black voices mm-hmm. and brown voices. And sometimes that means handing the mic over. Sometimes that means when they say, can you speak on this subject, you go for it. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a different way of looking at the world. That's what I tell people. It's It's not that you are... Uh, I, I don't know how to better to put it than to, just to say you, you just look at the world differently yes, I think than you once did. I think that's a great way of putting it. And and you've mentioned speaking engagements. I know you have been for years, quite literally, the spokesperson for the Heather Heyer Foundation. Are speaking engagements consistent? Are they people still interested? Do they want to hear from you? And do they want to learn from your experience? Well, you know, I I took the coaching class partly because I really would like to not make money off my daughter's death. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of what I do for free. I'm doing this for free Mm -hmm. because of that very notion. Mm -hmm. Having said that, however, I still have groceries to buy. I still have to put gas in the car. I actually spent almost all the money that was given in the GoFundMe after I paid bills and started the foundation and paid out some to her father and, and uh, her sibling and uh, to my co-founder, I, I spent the rest of it on traveling to do the speaking engagements rather than people paying my way because I felt like it was not my money. Mm. But I do some speaking engagements on the side just to make ends meet. I'm still living in the same single wide trailer I've lived in since 1996 and still shop at Walmart and uh, buy Mm. things on clearance. You know, I live very frugally, Mm -hmm. but I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to make ends meet. So, But every time I think that people are tired of hearing about it, then something cycles through again, like the debate last night. Yes. Triggered a round of press again today. Yes, yes. and that's something I wanted to, to ask, and I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I did mention this that's during okay. the break, that the the anniversaries, and of course the fact that uh, Charlottesville came up in the presidential debate last night, but the anniversaries, and you know what I mean by that. What happens on the anniversaries? <laughs> what happens when something comes up that reminds people 
about what happened in Charlottesville in August 2017. What happens in your life? The press immediately reaches out. With the anniversary, people will oftentimes prepare ahead of time by planning something or taping something a week or two in advance. But there's also always a round of people who suddenly look at their calendar and go, oh, yeah, that happened, and reach out to me the day before. So the anniversary is emotionally taxing enough, and then we do the press. But I feel like it's important because, there again, I'm using the platform to bring attention to the issues, Mm -hmm. not to myself. Yes. And so... That's, I understand. And also, I should mention, you haven't today, but you have on every time that we've spoken, your daughter died in August 2017, but there are a lot of people injured in that. And two state troopers died on that day. So you are Mm -hmm. always reminding people that it's not just about you or Heather, but it's about all the things we've been talking about today, the anti-racism that must be a part of our sustained activism. What about when you speak of platforms, have you ever considered doing your own podcast? I'm so glad you're on mine, but do you have plans for that? Have you thought about it? Have people suggested it? Yes, yes, and yes. Let's just say it's on my list. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, that's fair. Well, uh, I think it's a great idea, and, you know, whatever I can do uh, in that, you just let me know. But I look forward to that happening. Well, thank you. And you mentioned coaching. You're doing life coaching, business coaching. What what are you doing? I plan to hang out my shingle in November. I just got my early certification as a life coach. Actually, the coaching class started on the week of Heather's birthday. Mm. And it ended on the week that she was killed. And I oh. thought that was kind of a sign, there too. It is a sign. My um, goodness, yes. But it has been suggested that I do grief coaching. I I don't really feel like that's what I want to do. I want to help people find their voice, people who feel like they are they don't know how to speak up, they're overlooked, whether at home or at work. During the course of the class, we coach people and... I felt pretty happy when I helped at least three different people find their inner voice because I think so often people don't know how to speak up. They don't have the confidence. They don't know how to magnify themselves, mm-hmm. how to stand up for themselves, how to advocate for themselves. And so I'm hoping to work with people on that either in groups or one-on-one, but that's That's sort of a side issue. Mm -hmm. I may eventually do grief coaching as well. There certainly is a need for it. I wrote an article, an op-ed that was published in Fortune this anniversary. Every single anniversary I've had an op-ed that was published by somebody. Yes. (laughs) First year it was Cosmopolitan. The second year it was Washington Post. Mm. And this year it was Fortune. But I, I talked about grief and how grief comes in cycles and I'm in the process of trying to get my website up. That's been on my list for years, and now I have someone to help me with it. And wow, that's very <laughs> you know, good. I'm just taking things as I can handle them a chunk at a time. I understand, and we so appreciate you and, and all that you're doing. And I know 
There's a lot that you do that we we don't hear about. I mean, starting a foundation is not a minor thing, even if you had experience doing it. But if that's the first time in the wake of, of losing a child to start a foundation that, in her honor, that helps everybody else while you're dealing certainly with the grief and the loss is quite something and i and i know you write have you have you ever thought about a a, a blog page a regular writing a regular blog or, or what are your thoughts about your writing you know what i'm going to say it's on my <laughs> list <laughs> i lo- i took over editing the foundation website we had a firm that was handling it for us pro bono but that meant they would get to us when they could so mm. I thought, you know, I can do this. I know I can. So mm-hmm. I've taught myself how to edit the website. So I have it set up to do a blog page, but I literally have not had time. I have eight grandchildren, several in-law steps, mm-hmm. and a biological child still living. I have parents who are elderly and other family members that we have helped out from time to time. So life is kind of busy, but I do have it in mind and will be, you know, once that's launched, I'll be accepting blogs from other people from Mm. time to time as well. Yeah, hopefully between now and January, I can get all these things rolling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Trying to stay home and, you know, stay out of the public helps a lot because you, um, without all the traveling, I have more time to do things. Yes. As I say that, though, I look around and my house is really in disarray. I need to <laughs> clean. <laughs> so who knows? Well, we're being personal here because I want people to know it's not like all of a sudden this all happened. You have been doing this and, and life goes on. Your personal life is as much involved in all of this and family, but you are the one who's spearheading this and have always been. And I think the last time we spoke on the phone, you were actually visiting, was it an aunt who had just had a heart attack or something? Yep. Uh, and we hope to go back to to stay with her for a few days in, in the coming month. How's she doing? In fact, um, Okay. Okay. getting medications adjusted. Meanwhile, my own mother had gone in the hospital, but because of the pandemic, I couldn't do anything for her, and she said to go be with her sister. So oh. it's it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, r- real life happens, and um, I, you know, I still have to order groceries at two in the in the morning sometimes and end up having to go pick them up in Charlottesville rather than where I live because mm-hmm. the app has moved me to the wrong location or something. I, you know, I wonder if people in Congress still have to order their own groceries, vacuum their own floors, and <laughs> do all the real-life things that the rest of us have to do. Yes. Um, A couple of years ago now, you, you actually spoke before Congress and made quite an impression what was their impression on you? And I've spoken before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights a mm. couple of times. Yes. And the Virginia branch of that one time. Um, they're looking for information. They want to know what's happening to their constituents, and they're trying to make policy decisions in a way that will pass. 
unfortunately that sometimes means rolling things in together we're in the process of trying to see if we can get the jabara hired uh no hate act passed Mm -hmm. but it got rolled in with stimulus discussions and other civil rights packages which the senate had vowed they would not pass and they didn't so we'll try again but i take courage because i know the james bird matthew shepherd act took 13 years before it made it through so yes yes you know we we just have to stick to it It, i I, I get frustrated sometimes because at age 63, I was sort of looking forward to ramping down my life, and instead life seems to be ramping up. <laughs> yes. But I, but I can do it. And, you know, and it all comes back to uh, the first time I heard this, this uh, term, sustained activism, and you are the model of it. And it is true. Activism, advocacy for what is positive, and building those positive relationships and communications and actions and lifestyles and society, all of that takes time, takes a lot of people, and uh, it takes someone to show the way and it takes someone like you to remind us that we need to all remind ourselves. How's that? Sounds good. And, you know, there are people like me out here who are doing this kind of work and you know, I'm new to the game. There are people who have been doing the, the same work I've been doing for 30 and 40 years, and nobody's giving them credit. Yeah. And I'm a little embarrassed about that, that I'm still getting all this attention, and they're not. But we're all heading in the same direction to make the world a better place, and there's a lot of us. Mm-hmm. I often use the analogy of each of us is throwing out pebbles. We're making ripples in the water, but if you get enough ripples together, you get a wave, and mm-hmm. if you get enough waves together, you get a tsunami. There you are. We need a tsunami. We do. We do that. Absolutely. And I think also if a little encouragement on the, the blog page and the website uh, direction you're going, that would be such a site from you would be a great place for all of these various organizations to have input, to contribute articles, and receive some of that recognition that you you wish That's for. That's a good them, idea. You know, really. And that would take the pressure off me having to come up with all of it. <laughs> well, call, call on me for whatever I can do in this, anytime. Well, I'll... I have the title of my first blog on my on my uh, editing page, and that's called Are We There Yet? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's the question. Yes. All right, Susan Pro. What do you want us to take away from this? How do we get in touch? How do we apply for the foundation? How do we help? How do we volunteer? Any any contact information? Go to the website of the Heather Heyer Foundation at www.heatherheyerfoundation.com and the applications will be there. There's a site there you can donate. I have not really reached out to a lot of volunteers, but that too I'm hoping to change. I'm hoping to set in some place. Part of what I need to have is um, training for volunteers mm-hmm. because I have some particular criteria for what I want from people. So stay tuned. <laughs> and uh, we're trying. But number one, vote, 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 vote. Only once. Yes. But vote. <laughs> yes. Everybody vote, but only once. Yes, we got it. Good for you. All right then, Susan. Susan Bro, founder of the Heather Heyer Foundation, 
in the midst of the most tragic thing that can happen to a parent, and yet she moves forward and she inspires us all on television, in articles, newspapers, uh, before Congress. She has become a focal point, and, but her arms are open for everyone, everyone who's positive and wants to make a change, positive changes in our society. Uh, yes, I, indeed. Did I cover it all, Susan? I think so. All right. um, I am nonpartisan, bipartisan. I've always voted independent. That's not an option this year, but you know, I'm not. I'm saying you don't have to be a Democrat to reach out to us by any means. We all have to work together. Yes, and that's it. That's the thing. We have got to all work together. Okay, can't end on a higher note than that, Susan Bro. Thank you so very oh, much for being you. on the show. We really appreciate you. And always, as I've told you, I'm always glad just to hear the sound of your voice, especially with well, all the good so things much. you say. Thank you. It's always an honor to be here. Don't be a stranger. Absolutely. Same to you. Okay? All right. All the Thanks. best. Bye. Bye now. And now, from WatchFireMusic.com, vocal artist Jenny Burton, singing... Who will heal the world? Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard around the world. Trump's COVID-19, weapon, miracle, hoax, or just a parade passing by? In the age of real and imaginary extremes, conspiracies, and lockstep mindsets, where too many have become self-hypnotically vulnerable to potential electoral crucifixion so nailed by our self-decapitating federal government, it is no time for sneers, smirks, nor unmasking for I told you so. Long before Tim Russert unintentionally parted the Red Sea of America's red and blue states, exposing the myth of our United We Stand, what impressed me most about Charlton Heston's pre-NRA Moses response 
to a leader who thought himself a god was, an imperious leader can easily drown his loyal followers in their own belief in false prophets and destroy a nation and civilization far senior to America. Our 244-year venture has been compromised by the malignancy of too big to fail, latching onto America's Marshall Plan and America's Affordable Care Act cells, by humans ignoring to whom much is given much is required, who washed their hands of justice and equality for all long ago, savoring now their abandonment of planetary stewardship. Nonetheless, from its inception, America's democratic ideals were the golden calf for millions. Through feast and famine, civil, foreign, and world wars, assassinations and deceptions, depressions and recessions, our international standing was the good, one person, one vote, the bad, our overconsumerism at the expense of the less fortunate, until the ugly American an unapologetic, inept, and apathetic fake, was lifted up from the glitter of fool's gold by the chest masters of greed for power and dominion over earth and all life upon it. What if our 2020 elections are a revelation precipice, allowing us to look into the promised potential of either American self-destruction or self-renewal? Will we see the hardened heart of Ramses II or a new Moses? Will we vote to be remembered for our majestic monuments to slave owners, catatonic enslavement to Black Friday purchase devices, or for our artistic humanity and indiscriminate human kindness? For months, America's president kept the tragic potential of COVID-19 secret from Proud Boys and Never Trumpers, Republicans and Independents, Democrats and Undecided, and from those who worship the ground he walks upon and those who wish he were six feet under it. Why? So he can stay out of jail, saved by bone spurs again, pretending ill-gotten gain would make him in the image of Ghazir Khan's heroic son, patriots like Senator John McCain, or veterans Hunter and Beau Biden? In 2016, didn't we, after all, put away childish things? like Lady Liberty's Promise, FDR's New Deal, and John Kennedy's eagle-like Cuban Missile Crisis strategy, extending the perfect balance between arrows and olive branches to prevent global nuclear destruction. If so, is there enough retrievable, ask what you can do for your country, to elect civility, unity, and the sanity needed to save our Constitution from the realization of a founding fear? A tyrant could manipulate public opinion and come to power on the shoulders of misinformation and emotional mob rule. Although armed with more information than he cared to share, Trump risked the lives of his own base by holding large indoor and outdoor events with supporters who, at his bidding, attended without masks or following social distancing guidelines. Now, it seems, his undercutting scientific expertise and retarded response to providing PPE to hospital personnel is having its way with him. But be assured, I do not wish Donald Trump dead for any reason, including, but not limited to, Mike Pence actually believes that his religious beliefs make him superior to people who don't think, look, 
or act as he does. Tragically, however, even in the throes of possible death, Trump enablers fear sharing truth. Example, a White House source tells reporters the president's vitals over last 24 hours were very concerning and the next 48 hours will be critical. We're still not on a clear path to full recovery. While Walter Reed, military medical spokesperson's claim, the president has been fever-free for over 24 hours. We remain cautiously optimistic, but he's doing great and may return to the White House Monday, October 5th. Clearly, it is difficult to trust what we're told about or by Donald Trump, as most often it fails to survive fact-checking, especially when our 45th has intentionally endangered American security with national instability repeatedly. What then is America's truth? One, the number of infected within Trump's sphere and Republican Party is increasing. Two, 7.36 million people are suffering from COVID-19 in America. Three, COVID-19 has killed over 209,000 in the land of the free. Four, Trump attended large events even after his COVID diagnosis. Five, 2.9 million Americans, about the same margin of Hillary Clinton's 2016 popular vote victory, have already cast their vote for the next president of the United States. But beyond 2020 elections, we must uninstall Citizens United and corporatism's political puppets and reinstall government of, by, and for all of the people. Both Moses and Joe Biden overcame stuttering to lead their people. Don't we the people need leaders who can help us overcome what is past is prologue. Thank you and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.